The text today is taken from Hebrews 1, verses 4 through 14. If you want to read along with us in your Bibles, it's Hebrews 1, verses 4 through 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Holy Trinity downtown and all who are gathering with us today. Happy second Sunday of Advent. And we are just 19 days away from Christmas. And so for many of you, the celebration is sort of ramping up. Perhaps you're ordering gifts. Perhaps you're making plans for how you might possibly see your family or how you might possibly avoid your family during this season. And for many of you, you'll put up a few decorations and watch a few old movies like perhaps uh, White Christmas or Holiday Inn or for some of you, The Grinch or Elf or for others of you, it might be It's a Wonderful Life. For me, I really can't beat um, George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life and his every time when he gets to the end of the movie and he's he can't hold his temper back for his children and speak sharply to them. Uh, I find the tears welling up. And when the, after Uncle Billy lost all that money and the town then begins to uh, take up this collection and there's this sense of joy, um, it gets me <laughs> every time. And uh, I'm thankful for Christmas. We sang just a few minutes ago, Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Glory in excelsis Deo, glory in excelsis Deo. Shepherds, why this jubilee, why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly song? Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing and adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, our newborn king. At no other time of the year is there more talk of angels. And um, I know for a lot of people, the idea of an angelic beings uh, is a little hard to fathom. We live in a highly secularized world that doesn't really believe that there is something spiritual beyond the veil. And uh, 
And yet the scriptures teach, and if, you, if you've ever had the chance to travel to other places that are not as Western-oriented in their thinking, you will encounter this belief in the supernatural world. I remember when I was 17 years old and I was in the hills of Haiti for a week or so and heard some drums off in the distance and asked, what is that? And the answer was, those are are voodoo drums. Um, I've had African friends who've had curses laid upon them and they believe in the spirit realm. Uh, It's at Christmas that we encounter angels more than any other time. And they're not necessarily all as affable as uh, that one angel that we meet, Clarence Oddbody, I think his last name is, who is 200 years old. He's an angel second class, uh, an, an angel, an AS2. And uh, you'll remember that if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, that he encounters George Bailey first on the bridge. And he's entered into uh, this dark season because he owes this money and he's entered into this season of despair and discouragement and depression and even wants to take his own life and jumps off of the bridge. For the first century Jews, the concept of angels was not something mythical. It was not something imaginative and they weren't as bumbling, say, as Clarence was. Um, The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jews who were undergoing significant suffering in their day, most likely Roman persecution. Uh, The the term uh, a Roman candle really comes from the idea of the first century Christians being lit on fire. And uh, there's significant suffering in the book of Hebrews and the author is telling them to press on, but they've lost their sense, it seems, of what you might call a high Christology of Jesus, a high understanding of what the Messiah is like. And so the author is emphasizing the exaltation of Jesus over everything, over angels, over Moses, over the high priest, over the law, over the way that the past revelations had come. And in this little section, we get this comparison that's a little bit strange to us at first of Jesus being supreme and more excellent than all of the angels. And I'll just pause and ask, is it possible for us that we have lost in in the midst of our politics, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of uh, profound loss for some of us and heartbreak, that we've lost this sense of the supremacy of Christ, because what this passage is going to do is just argue for his excellency and his greatness. Why do we compare uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron James? Because when we lift both of them up in comparison, uh, it gives us a sense of who's greater. (laughs) And what's happening in this passage, pardon the analogy, is that Jesus isn't just a class of angels. What the author is doing is raising up Jesus and saying how much greater he is than the angels. My claim this morning is that the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to the angels in order to show that Jesus is greater than the angels and that he's greater in all of these categories of sonship and worship and creatorship and in victory. You don't actually have to believe in angels in order to be saved, to be great if you 
you do. You have to believe in Christ and his salvation in order to be saved. You don't have to believe in uh, LeBron James to know that Michael Jordan is the greatest, but it helps, I suppose. So what I wanna do today is just show you this picture of Jesus as greater than any earthly human teacher, as greater than any human philosopher, greater than the angels, the greatest of all time. In business, they call it being in a category of one when the iPhone was invented. It really invented a category. Well, Jesus is not just a class of angels, class two or class one. He's in a completely different class by himself. And I'm just gonna show you four reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels here. And, and I'm kind of answering two questions. Why is he greater than the angels? But also I wanna ask you from an application standpoint, have you lost your sense, your vision of the supremacy of Christ? And there's four claims in this text. I'm just gonna state them very quickly. One is that Jesus' sonship means our sonship. His sonship means our sonship. Secondly, is that Jesus' worship means our gladness. His worship means our gladness. And the third one is this, is that Jesus' permanence means our confidence. Because he's permanent, we can have confidence. And then lastly, is that his victory means our rest, that he's accomplished something for us so that we can rest. So will you bow with me and pray, and then we'll open the text together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this celebration of Christmas that is coming. We pray that you'd keep our eyes attuned to the manger and to who Jesus is and help us to see him in ways that we haven't seen him before. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The very first thing that we see next in the text is that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his sonship. The first claim in the text is that Jesus is greater than the angels because of his sonship. And you should know that in this text that we're about to look at, there are seven Old Testament references because what the, what the author is doing is what he's argued before is that Jesus is the greatest revelation that God was revealing things previously through dreams and through his written word, through uh, riddles and proverbs and things like that. But now what he's doing is revealing himself through his son. And yet what the, old, what the author does is root his argument in the Old Testament so that you can see it. And so in this first little section, he quotes the Old Testament two times. But his claim is that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his sonship, which is a very important concept. Sonship is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, even back to the book of Exodus. But think of it this way. Islam does not believe in the sonship of Christ. The Islam believes that Jesus was a great prophet, but doesn't believe that he is actually God's son. And so the author is making this argument to the Jews of that day. Here's what it says, verse four says, having become as much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we studied that last week. And then he says, quote Psalm uh, chapter two, verse seven, and he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So in order to prove to these Jews that from the Hebrew scriptures that God has a son, he quotes uh, Psalm chapter two, verse seven. And then he goes to another one. And this is from Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, verse 14, which is amazing. He says, um, or again, I will to be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Um, 
And what was happening in that context is that David has come to God and said, hey, let me build a house for you. And God says to him, no, let me build a house for you. And then he changes the imagery of house to one of kingdom or family and says to David that someone's going to come after David dies, his offspring is going to sit on a throne and he will establish, God will establish the rule of his throne forever. And that's why the promises about David are so important because the one who comes as the Messiah born into the world will need to be from his line. And uh, the sonship of Jesus is very important in the Old Testament and in the New Testament scriptures. Jesus is born as the son of God. About um, a year ago, my wife and I were invited to a black tie event. And uh, I mean, who doesn't like to get dressed up? It was the going to be held at the Museum of Science and Industry. And uh, there was going to be, I think, four to five hundred people there. And um, you know, my wife looked amazing. Ashanti and Amanda were there. They looked spectacular as well. It was to celebrate 150 year anniversary of Progressive Baptist Church. And Pastor Charlie Dates was sort of hosting my wife and I got there and we went to get our ticket. We had bought our ticket months and months before we really wanted to be there, you know. And uh, we got to the ticket um, desk and they couldn't find our ticket. <laughs> And so we had this, like, we went from feeling like, okay, we're insiders to feeling like, oh, we're outsiders. Nobody wants us to be here or anything. And, and uh, so what happened was they said, don't worry, we will take care of it. And so we see people kind of scurrying around doing different things. And then they bring us to our seat or they give us our tickets and we go sit down. And Amy and I are sitting at the table with Charlie's probably most influential influential mentor who had really mentored it. And there were three kind of statesmen of the city of Chicago, African-American pastors here, who had a combined ministry of more than 120 years. These um, three pastors who had ministered in the city for so long. And all of a sudden, Amy and I just felt like, what are we doing here? We have, we don't deserve to be in the presence of these other leaders. Can you imagine the audacity of thinking that you might sit at the table of God or as it says here, at the right hand of God? What, what, the, psalm, what, what the psalmist is doing, but also what uh, the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, there is an honor which is so high that no created being could possibly take it, and it is to sit at the right hand of God. God has never said to any angel or to any human other than his son, come and sit at my right hand because the right hand of the Father is a place of honor and a place of dignity and a place of majesty and a place of rule. And there's only one person in the universe who deserves that place. And it is the child who was born on that day. Listen to what uh, the uh, Nicene Creed says. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And then listen to this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. There's only one Son, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God and light from light, true God from true God. 
begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Don't ask me to explain that right now, but this is high Christology. This is lifting up Jesus as God's only son. There's no one like him. You cannot compare him to anyone else. But what's happening in this text is that the author is laying a foundation for what he's going to argue in chapter 2, which is this. It's that the sonship of Christ means the sonship of us, that we can be his children because he is a son. Here's what it says in Hebrews 2.10, and we sing this sometimes, that Christ became a son in order to bring many sons to glory. He was born in the flesh in order to show human flesh the way to heaven. More than that, in order to break through with the cross and with the resurrection to show us that we can be his sons and daughters. You see, uh, when Billy Bailey, George, George's absent-minded uncle, loses $8,000, George's life falls apart. But in the true Christmas story, in the same way that George Bailey could not save himself on that bridge, we cannot save ourselves, that there is a debt that we cannot pay, that we have worked our fingers to the bone and tried for ourselves to atone, and he adopts us. He says that when we were orphans running away from his voice, he says, you will be my children. And Jesus was born into the world in order to make us children of the Father. Jesus' sonship means our sonship as well. That's part of the reason why he was born, and it's why he's greater than angels. So no angel is a son. The very first reason why Jesus is greater than the angels is because he is a son, sonship. The second reason why Jesus is greater than the angels comes in verses 6 to 9, and the author uses three more Old Testament quotes, and it's not because of sonship, but because of worship. And here's what it says. Verse 6, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, listen to this, and he quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, let all God's angels worship him. In other words, Jesus doesn't face the angels with worship. They face the Father and the Son with worship. This is part of how we know that Jesus is inherently God, that he's inherently divine. It's because The angels worshiped him. Even the disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 28, after they see him raised from the dead, it says they fall down and worship him and some doubted. Imagine that you are walking through um, a mall or through Millennium Park, say, and somebody were to fall down and worship you. You would say, get up. What are you doing? You see, angels are messengers. They're not the Messiah. They have duties to fulfill. They are not divine, and yet Jesus is divine, and God sends them out like fire, like like the wind. That's what it says in verse 7. It says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's from Psalm 104, verse 4. It's the fourth quote that he uses. Not Jesus. Jesus is not a mere messenger. And then he goes on and says, verse 8, it says, but of the Son, and listen to this language, it's the language of kingship. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's a king, is what we're going to see. Your throne, O God, 
Your throne, O God, of the Son, is forever and ever. The scepter of his, unri- of his uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This imagery of ruling, of worship, is, is not given to any angel or any other human being. And these are symbols of power and of reign. The throne is rule. The, the scepter is an instrument of power and of rule. And it's more than just symbolic. Listen to what it says. There's so much discussion in our culture today about justice. What the Bible has to say about justice. Listen to what it says in, about Jesus in, in verse 9. Quoting Psalm 45, you have loved righteousness, or Dikaiosune, you have loved justice. God cares here about justice. Jesus cares about righteousness and hated wickedness. And then here comes gladness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We think of oil, you know. Olive oil is being something you dip some Italian bread in. In the Old Testament, oil was used to be put on the heads of kings and of prophets and of priests to set them apart. And here the imagery is that Jesus is anointed with gladness. Oh, how our world needs the oil of gladness. Oh, how our dark world needs the oil of joy. And where to get it? In the text, it's saying, come to the throne. Come to the scepter. See his love of justice. You may not feel worthy, but he calls you there. The child in the manger is going to inherit this throne. The child in the manger is going to bring this gladness, as we sang, as far as the curse is found. Why? Because he rules the world with truth and grace. No angel rules. No angel sits at the right hand of God. No angel sits on the throne. 1991, 1992, 1993, 1996, 1997, 1998. Michael Jordan has
And the imagery that it begins to use in this psalm and in the first chapter of Hebrews is the image of garments wearing out. Anybody ever put on a sweater and the, all of a sudden there's a hole in the elbow or picked up a robe and you can see it splitting at the seams and you anybody cleaned out their closets in order to give some things away, rolled things up in order to, to uh, bring them, say, to Salvation Army. Um, that's what it's saying is going to happen to the universe in this passage. It says about heaven and earth, listen, they will all wear out like a garment, like an old coat, say. It says, like a robe, verse 12, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed. I don't know if you've ever thought about how long the universe will last. or <laughs> it's The imagery is like these black holes being punched into the universe as a way of saying that entropy, that the universe is sort of wearing down. And what it says at the end of the book of Hebrews is that, listen to Hebrews 13, verse 8, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the point is the confidence that we can have. Don't you need something to lash your hope to in this season? When Mary is carrying this child on the way to Bethlehem, when the child is born, a certain kind of confidence is born because the maker of the universe is born in this manger and he will outlast his own universe. It's as if William Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. Jesus, the creator of the play, enters the play and you can have confidence in him and him alone because of who he is. So let's not lose our grasp of the supremacy of Christ, of his sonship, of his worship, of his creatorship. And then the last thing is, why is Jesus better than the angels? Fourth reason is because of his victory. And there's one last quote that comes, comes here. Here's what it says. It says, uh, Psalm 110 is quoted in verse 13. It says, and to which of his angels did he ever say, similar to what it was said earlier, sit at my right hand, but a little, a little uh, phrase is added here. Listen, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Psalm 110 is a battle, there's battle imagery. It speaks at the end of Psalm 10 of this warrior kind of dipping down and, and, and refreshing himself from a brook, having seen his enemies defeated. And from a New Testament perspective, what it's saying is that every enemy that you have, not just depression and discouragement, but death itself, not just your selfishness and your self-orientation, but sin itself, not merely our despair, but the disease of death and sickness itself, Christ came into the world to crush. And that's what it says in our text in chapter Two, listen to what it says, 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, listen, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He wants you to be sons and daughters, and so he has set you free 
from the slavery of this world. This child born 2,000 years ago in this manger under these stars is a son who wants to bring you to sonship, is a ruler who wants to bring you to worship and gladness, is a creator who wants to bring you to confidence, and is a victor who wants to bring you to rest. The, the imagery there is of Christus victor is what it's called. It's one way of thinking of Christ's victory over all things. If you've ever felt like an orphan and running away from God, he calls you and adopts you to be his child. If you've ever felt like you're working your fingers to the bone to, to try for yourself to atone, he's paid your debt, born into this world for victory over death, over sin, and over God's wrath. We got news this week that uh, someone's father had passed away in the downtown congregation. It was sad, but the, the person who wrote the note to us said, but he is with God in heaven now. And uh, I think it's interesting in this season to reflect not just on death, but on birth. Um, I have a number of my nieces and nephews now who are having children, even in the last couple of weeks, my brother's son had a little baby called Hannah Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus or come quickly Lord Jesus. And another one of my nieces had a little baby named Hudson. Sweet little picture of him and another niece is about to have a baby. And all these births and also the death remind me so much of the precious intimacy of Jesus being born as a son. But to think that we are called to worship him, and that we receive his gladness as we come to him in worship, to me is very powerful. So Holy Trinity, may you remember that Jesus is greater than all the angels because he's a son, because he's a ruler, because he's a victor, because he's the creator. And uh, I pray that you'd have a wonderful, wonderful second advent. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Thank you for your word and what it proclaims to us. And we pray, oh Lord, that uh, this picture of the supremacy of Christ would ring true in our hearts this week, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's sing now together uh, some of what I've been referencing a little bit more a few moments ago. I was an orphan lost at the fall, at the fall running away when I'd heard you call, but Father, you worked your will. Let's go to sing now.